Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, April 28th. We begin with a look at a potential connection between domestic violence and mass murder, drawing from the deadly events earlier this month in Nova Scotia. We speak with a psychologist who studied violence against women and children for the past 40 years. It's been a rough ride for Alberta's economy for a number of years now, and yet Albertans continue to contribute a considerable amount more than any other province to the federal government's finances. We break down the numbers released in a new Fraser Institute study. Then we look beyond the coronavirus crisis and ahead to the upcoming flu season. Could this year's flu add to an already difficult health situation and is Canada ready for it? We'll get some answers from a doctor of medical microbiology and infectious diseases. And finally, we catch up with Crystal Gumansing, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Crystal gives us the latest of the effects of COVID-19 in the UK, including a compensation package for families who have lost loved ones who were frontline workers. 709 now, the Nova Scotia shooting, just one example of domestic abuse being linked to a mass killing. We're joined now by a psychologist who's studied violence against women and children for over 40 years and says the link between domestic abuse and mass murder needs to be recognized. We say good morning to Peter Jaffe. Hi, Peter. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, as we look at what happened in Nova Scotia just over a week ago, do we see a pattern then, historically speaking? Well, certainly in the Nova Scotia case, uh, it began with an act of domestic violence, and, and obviously the, the victim managed to get away, but many other people lost their lives. Uh, and it's, it's not unusual. Um, in research across the U.S., for example, uh, 60% of mass killings uh, involve domestic violence at the beginning, and at least 40% of the perpetrators of the mass killings had a history, a known history of, of domestic violence. So these, these are links that we need to recognize and we need to start to name the problem a lot more clearly. So we recognize them earlier and at, at which point is it, is it a case of getting law enforcement to, you know, to, to, to kind of start a file or we're just talking about seeing, seeking professional help for these offenders? Well, we're talking about the whole community Uh, being involved and having more knowledge about the issues. Uh, We've studied uh, domestic homicide in Canada. I'm currently involved with uh, a project with Myrna Dawson from University of Guelph and uh, 12 other investigators across the country looking at domestic homicides. And domestic homicides rarely happen out of the blue. Uh, Most are preceded by a number of well-known risk markers known to friends, family, co-workers and professionals in the community. Uh, so, for example, you know, you know, previous acts of violence, threats of violence, uh, someone who has access uh, to firearms, uh, looking at somebody who has issues with alcohol and drug abuse, uh, separation is a big factor, being jealous, controlling. So these are all things that were certainly talked about uh, with this perpetrator. I mean, obviously the RCMP are still in the middle of a very complex investigation, mm-hmm. but these are things that... that friends and family neighbors are talking about. Peter, let's talk about, I'm just curious, is there is there sort of, in all your research you've done, is there one sort of key thing that you can see that sends a person, and we're going to say usually men that are, in, you know, responsible for this, that sends someone over the edge, turns them from someone who you know, is a perpetrator of domestic violence into a mass killer? Where does that link happen? Well, it- it's not one issue. I mean, there's usually multiple factors, and, and thank goodness we're still talking about relatively rare events. Uh, but when they do happen, there there appears to be a pattern 
there's a, a number of risk markers. Um, a lot of it deals with someone who has uh, who's trying to maintain control of their partner and control of their environment and is and is quickly losing control and then gets desperate and obviously the act of, of desperation uh, involves violence so you, you can't point to one factor uh, in this case according to the reports and these are uh, reports by by friends and neighbors there's previous incidents of very serious violence a uh, previous occasion it was reported uh, that the victim tried to get away from the perpetrator. He took off the back wheels of her car when friends tried to help her get her things from the perpetrator's home. Uh, he threatened them with firearms. So clearly there's, there's a previous pattern that certainly is documented in this case and is quite alarming. There's also a number of other allegations about uh, other violence uh, in reported about the perpetrator and his family, but these are all things that police have to investigate to confirm. And in your studies, uh, over 40 years when it comes to domestic abuse of, of both the women, uh, spouses, and of obviously their children, it's difficult, I would think, because it's not just one part of the country that is affected and not just one socioeconomic demographic. So uh, it's, a, it's a deep issue to study and, and try to make connections of these sorts, aren't, isn't it? Yes, there's... Uh, I mean, it's a complex area, but the, we we know one thing for sure, which is that these things don't happen out of the blue. Somebody doesn't wake up one day and decide to kill everybody mm-hmm. um, or kill their partner. Usually, there's a pattern. We've uh, there's a number of domestic violence death review committees across the country, uh, and three quarters of the cases are ones where there's multiple risk factors that have been known. There are warning signs that friends, family, neighbors, coworkers police, family doctors, uh, even teachers uh, will recognize. So I think the thing we have to change in terms of community attitude is these things don't happen out of the blue. They're warning signs. So it requires not only much more education of professionals, but also much more public awareness. Is it something that we need to start at a younger age, Peter, to make sure that this misogyny does not bloom or grow as the adult, you know, as the person grows into adulthood? Definitely, part of the, part of the answer uh, is public education, and that public education can start in kindergarten. So clearly, there's a number of great programs now available across the country uh, to educate uh, students about healthy relationships and alternatives to violence. So these are attitudes that develop early, and we have to com- combat this in a in a number of ways. So we, there's great model models with, within your province and uh, across the country that uh, we need to expand because prevention is going to be obviously the long-term cure. Mm-hmm. Peter, do we have enough resources aimed at domestic abuse in our nation or is there anything you'd like to see or, or, or that we should be adding And uh, uh, as far as maybe it's not just resources but money to fight this issue? Uh, clearly more resources have to be geared towards public education, professional education, obviously services uh, for abuse victims, uh, obviously better intervention programs uh, for abusers. So, I mean, clearly there's there's a 100-point plan. Like, it, it won't be a quick fix and it won't be one pot of money directed uh, to one particular agency. But certainly, you know, violence against women agencies are stretched across the country and, and need more support. There also needs to be more outreach 
to more vulnerable victims. Obviously, living in a rural community or remote community, it makes it more difficult to reach out uh, for help. There's obviously some populations, indigenous women, uh, immigrant refugee women, uh, children living with violence. There, there's some vulnerable and high-risk populations that need a lot more support than they're getting currently. I think we need to keep talking about it and keep putting it in the limelight so we can get that support. Thank you for joining us, Peter, with your perspective. Thank you for this important conversation. Thank you. It's Peter Jaffe, a psychologist who has been studying violence against women and children for more than 40 years now. 8.12 on the morning news. It has been one month since many businesses in Calgary closed their doors or drastically changed their ways of operating. This morning, we're checking with the pulse of the Calgary business community with Sandeep Lali, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Good morning, Sandeep. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us, Sandeep. What are you hearing from business owners that you're in touch with about the new government subsidies? Are, are they working? Are they happy with them? Yeah, you know, seven weeks into physical distancing, it has been quite the challenge. And, you know, the federal programs having been announced, you know, say six weeks ago and now coming into play in week seven, you know, that hasn't helped much because, quite frankly, some of them are falling through the cracks of not having the decline in revenue, but also they've had to expend, you know, cash that they didn't have. So loans have increased. And so, Really now they're like, okay, well, I'll apply and see what happens. But just that delay for them is what we're hearing quite a bit to say, okay, I'm going to give it the college try to see, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure this is going to be enough for me. Sandy, it's been interesting to watch and see businesses pivoting and and finding a way to try and bring in some money, but what they're bringing in is not enough. And and so this money on top of it, it, you, you don't think it'll be enough for a lot of the businesses to survive? No, I don't think, I mean, if you think about this, how it happened, it's a really going to be an L-shaped recovery. So there was a dramatic down and a long tail to get back. So when we talked to the businesses, they're like, you know, the recovery here, I'm looking at 2023, 2024. Mm. And there's recently just a survey out by um, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses that said, for Calgary, actually, 38% are looking to, you know, close their doors. And we're hearing that as well. You know, it's, they're saying it's better maybe for me to go dark for a while and then come back in a year or two. So, yeah, it's it's a bit late on the, the funding to come in, but also the recovery is so long and they're so dependent on consumer confidence. Public health has to be stable for them to have, you know, restaurants full and other small businesses and, you know, all of that stuff that is service-oriented to come back. Because this was a service-led downturn and recession as a result of COVID-19. Got to try to look for a bright spot here, Sandeep. Are we seeing some local businesses thrive during this pandemic? I'm thinking maybe uh, takeout restaurants. Are there any other surprises that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things um, is with the restaurants and their ability to have the the delivery service or curbside pickup and have alcohol as part of that. So that's hopefully a regulation that stays in place so that they can, you know, continue on that revenue stream. So that's one regulation that, you know, we've, we've heard that, hey, if that could continue, that would be great because that'll help us with our revenue model. We've had others who are starting to join up with other businesses to provide uh, into the supply chain. And so that's been interesting to see people that normally, businesses that wouldn't normally collaborate are collaborating. 
just so they can make market. So that's a bright spot for sure. Sandeep, I'm curious as to how you are hoping to see things begin to open up when that time comes. How, how do you think that that would best go on for Calgary businesses to the benefit of them? Yeah, so we've been having some of those conversations. Um, so as the Chamber, we did our first calls, you know, starting March 15th, and now we're on our second round of calls doing voice-to-voice. And some of the reopening plans that we're hearing is, you know, redesigning of the shared office space so that we can have that distance because, again, people are not going to be comfortable congregating. The other one is returning to work in rotations. So perhaps there's, you know, 30 of the workforce that comes in one day and another 50 another day, you know, that kind of thing. So try to get that comfort level. And then really taking guidance uh, from the public health agency, still looking to AHS. Um, The Calgary Chamber is actually putting together a path back to work. Uh, which we've worked on with other chambers to to say, how do you come back in a safe way? How do you reopen your business? But definitely a phased approach. And I think we're hearing that across the board from the other provinces as well. Thanks, Sandeep. We'll catch up again next week. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That is Sandeep Lolly, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. 819 now. It's been a rough ride for Alberta's economy for a number of years, yet Albertans continue to contribute more than any other province to the federal government's finances. This morning we're joined by Fraser Institute Senior Fellow and co-author of A Friend in Need, How Albertans Continue to Keep Federal Finances Afloat 2020, Ben Eisen. Hi, Ben. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, it it continues to be a thing that Albertans complain about, and especially in terms of the way our economy is continuing to be here in 2020, and yet contributing so much to the federal coffers. Why is that? Well, the number one reason for Alberta's uh, large net contribution to federal finances is, frankly, uh, good news for, for the people of Alberta. It's that uh, personal incomes are generally higher in Alberta on average than the rest of the country, which means that Albertans wind up sending uh, a lot of personal income tax to the federal government. So the reason behind it uh, is largely a, a good news story. Uh, however, um, it's perhaps not well known across uh, the rest of the country that even while Alberta has struggled in recent years, it still contributes uh, significantly more than any other pro- uh, uh, province on a net basis to the federal government. So our purpose in the study is to help Canadians from coast to coast understand uh, just how much Alberta contributes to the health of uh, government finances federally uh, and just how important it is for the whole country that Alberta have a strong economic recovery uh, and that the current recession not last. And Ben, the disparity is, you know, highlighted even more so when you look at Alberta compared to the giant known as Ontario and you compare the populations of the two provinces. That's what's so remarkable uh, about the scale of Alberta's contribution. It's almost impossible to communicate just how important Alberta is uh, to the finances of the country. Uh, Alberta, Ontario's uh, population is about three times as large as Alberta, but still Alberta's net contribution to Confederation is substantially larger than Ontario's, even during the period from 2004 uh, to 2018 that we looked at. So it's been a tough period for Alberta's economy and still the province's net contribution to federal finances is much larger, even in dollar terms, uh, than Ontario, which is about three times as big. Uh, so Alberta's uh, uh, punching above its weight in terms of its contribution to p- federal finances. And without that contribution, the deficits of re- recent years would have been much larger, uh, approximately twice as large, in fact, year after year. 
So even in a weakened state, Alberta has been a huge contributor uh, to federal finances, and this just helps to illustrate that a strong Canada uh, absolutely is dependent on the existence of a strong Alberta. Yeah, Ben, you know, we know here in Alberta how much we contribute, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that the rest of the country, the majority of people, likely do. So how do you get the results of this study you've done out to the rest of the country so that they get it? Uh, well, I think that the important, most important thing is for us to continue to do research along these lines. We've done research in recent years um, looking, looking at the fiscal contribution, looking during good times at the scale of Alberta's uh, contribution to nat- national job creation, helping people understand the extent to which Alberta helped drive the recovery uh, after the 2009 recession. Uh, from coast to coast, it didn't just uh, have a strong rebound in Alberta. Alberta's rebound helped the whole country uh, go forward. So our hope is uh, that we're doing our little bit uh, by doing our research, by promoting it as much as we can, by trying uh, to communicate to Canadians and not just to Albertans, uh, just how large this contribution is. Because the, our, our paper today shows just how uh, just how poor, poorly Canada's federal finances would have performed without Alberta's contribution. But it's not just that that metric. It's job creation. It's personal incomes. It's all of these things that Alberta has historically contributed so much to Canada uh, that in the, uh, if Alberta is in a weakened state, it can't contribute in the same way. So trying to get this message out through our research uh, and then trying to, to make sure that it's not just seen in Alberta, but it's seen coast to coast uh, is the reason why we do this work. And it's the reason why we work so hard to make sure that it's seen and its key findings are discussed. Uh, in all the other provinces as well. Uh, it's important for Alberta to, to be told this story, and it's important for Albertans to understand uh, that how large their contribution to Canada is, but it's just as important, as you say, for people elsewhere to know. Ben, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. That is Ben Eisen, Fraser Institute Senior Fellow and co-author of A Friend in Need, How Albertans Continue to Keep Federal Finances Afloat 2020. 609 on the morning news as countries compete for resources to fend off COVID-19. The government may want to start planning ahead for the next viral wave to set to, set to sweep across the planet. Of course, talking about the annual flu season, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jason Kindrichuk, Assistant Professor of the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases from the University of Manitoba. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, we're glad to have you on to talk about it because I think a lot of people would say, oh, the flu season, we're talking months from now. Why should we worry? But uh, you're saying perhaps government and uh, health systems, healthcare professionals for that matter, should be concerned. Yeah, you know, listen, when, when I look at influenza and, and it's something that, that we, you know, work on actively in, in my research lab, um, you know, we, we're dealing with a disease that, that does kill, you know, half a million people across the globe each year. Um, and yet, you know, when we look at vaccination rates, uh, say, between the ages of uh, 18 to 64 in Canada, we know that, that we fall uh, particularly below, uh, far below the, uh, you know, kind of the, the range that we would hope to be in. So, you know, we usually want to be, you know, or hope to be somewhere uh, around 80 percent if, if we possibly could be. But we're falling in between, you know, kind of the, the mid-20 uh, kind of percentile range. So, you know, we, we look at that and, and, and understand that, listen, flu kills a lot of people each year. And, and not only does it kill a lot of people, it puts a lot of people in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. So when we think about COVID-19, this now becomes one of these situations where it, it, it could actually uh, present a, a perfect storm if COVID-19 is, is still circulating uh, at that time. Or we perhaps get a, a second wave of it and it kind of collides with the flu. So, doc, doctor, is it super key and important this time around that the flu shot is the right flu shot this time? And, and when is, does, do they start to put that together? 
Oh, so, you know, that that's such a great question, right? And, you know, we start to get some indication, at least, of, of potential circulating strains, uh, usually during the summertime, from, from what we see in, in Australia and, and the Southern Hemisphere as they go through their winter season. The problem is, is it's not an exact science. So, you know, flu is, is a bit of a beast of a virus, and, and I've, you know, I've said that in the past. It, uh, it's not just one virus. It's a bunch of, uh, of different viruses, and it changes uh, fairly frequently. So, you know, we, we can do predictions, but they, they are predictions. So ultimately, the vaccine may not match. But kind of the silver lining is that even if the vaccine doesn't match, there is still the potential that it's likely going to provide at least some partial protection, which will, again, hopefully uh, overall reduce uh, symptoms, uh, particularly with, uh, with those that would potentially have severe disease. Something you touched on, hospital capacity, and that's why we want to get uh, coronavirus under control. But also, uh, co-infection. Tell us about this. Uh, could you could you have perhaps the flu and COVID-19 at the same time? Yeah, so we're, you know, we're starting to get a little bit better of a, a picture of this. So we know that viruses can do this, and we know that uh, respiratory viruses and, and bacteria uh, are particularly synonymous with, uh, with co-infection and, and with increasing uh, severe disease. Um, so we, we've seen some indication, at least from uh, you know from the early information from China, that there could potentially be uh, co-infection of of coronavirus or COVID nineteen uh, and influenza. What we don't know yet is whether or not those two actually produced a more severe disease, um, or you know was it something where people just had both uh, at the same time? Unfortunately. And there really wasn't any uh, kind of worsening of the symptoms. So I think we're still at a bit of an infancy in understanding that. But ultimately, you know, I think, again, we want to be in this kind of protection uh, position until we know what's going on to say, we want to do whatever we can to prevent that type of a situation. Yeah, particularly for our vulnerable and at-risk populations, right? I mean, seniors already, you know, bearing the brunt of this COVID-19 pandemic, the flu, when that rolls in, that could really worsen for them. Well, and, you know, and I think that's such a great point, right? So we, we know that obviously people that, uh, that are over the age of 65, particularly those that, that are over 80, um, are, are bearing the brunt of, of this across the globe. But, you know, it's funny when we look at the U.S., at least the, the early U.S. data from March, when they looked at hospitalizations, the hospitalizations were actually fairly similar across all age groups. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, we, we as a research community need to be uh, a little bit more proactive with in our messaging is that, you know, this, this does truly affect everybody across all age groups. And with flu, we know that as well, we, you know, it puts a lot of people in the hospital. So all of this is going to, you know, essentially exacerbate the situation uh, at hand if, if they both hit at the same time. And I know you mentioned that it's a, a moving target as far as which strain we go after. So it's a timing thing there, a preparation thing. And I remember last year there was, like, for example, my kids like to take that mist, the, the uh, spray mist. And there was a shortage of that. So uh, it's also impossible to decide, you know, uh, to, to determine rather not whether or not we might have some shortages when it comes to supplies we need. I, you know, I was just reading some posts on, uh, on Twitter about this from, uh, from some researchers in South Africa. And, uh, you know, Ed was saying the, the exact same thing is that one of the things that we have to think about this year, unfortunately, is, you know, we, we want to be you know, very promotive of, of people getting uh, flu vaccination. But we also know that if there's a massive uptake of it, um, there, there could potentially be that, that issue of shortages. So I, I'm sure that obviously manufacturers are already thinking of this ahead of time and, and already trying to kind of, kind of find ways to, to mitigate this. Um, but this goes back to this whole idea of, you know, when we get hit with perfect storm of infectious disease, um, it, it really stretches uh, all of our capacity absolutely thin. 
What about shortages in terms of supplies, doctor, like the medical supplies, the PPEs that we've heard there's been such an issue around the world? Do we keep ramping up the production of those to make sure that we never have a shortage of those kinds of, uh, you know, pieces of equipment again? Well, that, you know, that's kind of my hope out of this. Uh, again, I think we, you know, we, we've seen what happens when we get a brand new virus coming out uh, that, that spreads rapidly, that this can exhaust global supplies. And unfortunately, uh, we're, we're in a situation now where we are all globally linked using, you know, essentially, uh, you know, quite a few of the same manufacturers and distributors. So I'm hoping that out of this, what we realize is that, again, we, we can't just prepare or decide to prepare when we start seeing a, a pandemic or, or a new epidemic, mm-hmm. that we actually think about this in between the periods and understand the, just the, the unbelievable importance of, of being overly prepared. Okay, the last question, and everybody seems to have an opinion on this. The effectiveness of getting a vaccine to begin with, doctor, do we have numbers on how effective they are? And, and for those people who say, I, I don't get the vaccine because it, it doesn't help me out. So you're talking about for flu or for COVID-19? For flu, obviously, we're still waiting on the COVID-19 front, yes. Exactly. So so for flu, listen, the the effectiveness is is always questionable. I mean, we we know that with flu, like I said, there's multiple circulating strains and it changes. Um, But again, I think we have to look at this from the standpoint of even getting partial uh, protection is better than having no protection. And ultimately, you know, with flu, we have some pre-existing immunity, so that, that is a benefit to us. Um, but, but the vaccine, undoubtedly, when we look at the numbers, decreases the amount of, of severe disease, in particular within vulnerable, uh, vulnerable populations. So, yes, it's, it may not be a direct match, but it does have a, a purpose even, even during those times. Great information. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Doctor. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Please keep well. You too. That's Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Prof at the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the U of Manitoba. 649 now and according to a recent survey people in 14 different countries are divided over whether the economy and businesses should be allowed to open if the coronavirus pandemic is still not fully contained to break down the numbers for us we're joined by vice president at ipsos sean simpson hi sean good morning thanks for joining us okay talk to us about what you found as you look at different countries around the world and asking do we open this thing up yet what are you what are you getting and what are you hearing yeah, but well, let's start with Canada. Okay. In Canada, we have 25% of Canadians who agree that we should restart the economy and allow businesses to open, even if the virus is not still fully contained. So let's call that the Trump approach, for lack of a better word. But that means that there are 70% of Canadians who disagree with the premise, saying, no, 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 we need to keep going on our current measures to make sure that we've got this thing under control before we uh, reopen the economy. And now uh, Canada is very similar to attitudes in places like uh, Japan, for example, the United Kingdom, uh, and compares to the U.S. fairly well, 35% of Americans think that the economy should restart um, you know, before the virus is con- contained. But uh, attitudes in places like uh, Germany, Italy, Russia, and China uh, are different. A majority of the people there say, okay, let's get the economy going again, even if we don't have uh, a handle on the, on the virus just mm. yet. In the U.S., I was uh, sort of shocked, as you mentioned, 35%. Uh, to the 65% mm-hmm. saying uh, disagree that we should be opening. It, it, to me, that indicates that the president might have a different uh, message that he's spreading than the people really want. It, it's uh, quite surprising. 
Yeah, and we know that the uh, president's uh, approval rating is hovering around 40%, uh, which is about average for him in the United States. Uh, so there seems to be that core group of people who are with him no matter what. Uh, but, um, yeah, the majority of Americans uh, say that uh, we need to be cautious. And, uh, you know, we have to remember about where, where the, you know, a lot of Americans live. It's in populous states like uh, New York and California, uh, and many of which have been, been hit fairly hard uh, by the uh, by, by the coronavirus, so uh, I, I think it, it, it's understandable that the majority of Americans still uh, want to be cautious in their approach. Sean, as we do start to open things up here in Canada and around the world, how nervous are we about leaving our homes and really going about our business again? Yeah, we're quite nervous. Sixty-eight uh, percent of Canadians say that uh, even if businesses are allowed to reopen and, and travel is, is is permitted again, they're going to be nervous about leaving their home. And and it's a majority of, of people in almost every country that we that we surveyed. The only real exceptions are uh, in Italy, where forty-nine percent say that they would be be nervous. Uh, they've been on lockdown for the longest period of time. Uh, and Germany, forty-four percent. And and one of the things that that I think is interesting about the German experience, uh, even though they've had a, a significant number of cases, they've been able to keep their the, the death rate quite low. Um, but uh, one key uh, point of difference about Germany is that they required people to wear masks in public very early on. Uh, and I think so people are used to wearing them and, and understand that uh, they can have a positive impact if worn properly. Uh, and as such, Germans uh, are less nervous to go um, uh, out and about to, to run their errands. Sean, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That is Sean Simpson, Vice President at Ipsos. Coming up to 719 on the morning news. And today there will be a moment of silence for NHS workers and care staff at 11 a.m. local time. Uh, we're talking, of course, with Crystal Gumansingh uh, about the COVID-19 pandemic in Europe. We're going to be uh, talking about this, and this is an interesting program, Crystal. NHS workers and care workers who died of COVID-19 after getting it directly from being on the front lines will get those 60,000 pounds as a retribution, if you will, uh, for the work that they've done. It, it sounds, uh, you know, like one of those cases where they want to show what they uh, can do. Obviously, it's not going to bring back their loved ones, though. Yeah, and that's exactly what uh, Matt Hancock, the uh, health secretary, said yesterday when they made this announcement. This is something the government had promised, said that they were working on on some way of providing some financial support to families who have lost a loved one who are directly working in the healthcare sector. So this was expected. They they delivered on the promise of sixty thousand uh, pounds again to uh, an NHS worker or a care provider uh, who has died uh, as a direct result of contracting the virus from their work. So uh, again, it obviously cannot replace a loved one, um, but it is one of those um, acknowledgements to their to their efforts and, 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 you know, the fact that they gave their life trying mm-hmm. to protect others. Crystal, are there stats? Are there numbers? Do we know how many of those frontline workers have died as a result of COVID-19? You know, we really don't. And that's part of the challenge with some of the numbers that we're getting and some of the numbers that, frankly, we're just not getting. Uh, the moment of silence that was held at 11 o'clock local time this morning. Um, you know, we know that there is roughly 100 is what we're hearing, but we know there's, there's likely many, many more. And it's it's the same thing with the overall COVID-19 death rate in the UK. We, we talk a lot about the numbers, which, you know, we know it's over 20,000 now. Uh, 
Um, but again, those are just hospital-related deaths. They're not deaths from long-term care homes or deaths in other facilities or, or even those people who pass away at home, unfortunately. So the, the numbers, um, you know, one of those other challenges. And of course, the numbers are so important, not only to acknowledge the profound, um, you know, personal effect that this is having, but also just to get a true handle on on how the 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 government is doing, what the, what is working and what is not working. And you know, when you look at the U.S. and Italy and Spain and and the U.K., it gives you a gauge of, of what's going on. Speaking of what's going on, we're talking about uh, several economies around the globe and uh, even. Uh, south of the border here in Canada, talking about the U.S. opening different states. Uh, What is the current status in the U.K. as far as those uh, businesses opening and the economy uh, moving back to normal? Yeah, yesterday it was very clear. Boris Johnson returning to work for the first time. He, of course, was off recovering. He was discharged from hospital on April 12th. Everyone knows that he was admitted uh, beginning of April because of his own battle with COVID-19. Uh, and, and Boris Johnson was very, very clear yesterday, basically saying, listen, I understand the British business sector's anxiety, their need uh, to get back to work. But he basically said, no, it's not going to happen. Now is not the time that there is just too great of a risk, saying, in fact, that it is a moment of opportunity, but also maximum risk, and that he just wasn't willing. You know, his quote was, I refuse to throw away all of the sacrifice of the British people. So contain your impatience. Um, so really, the feeling is we're not there yet. Even if you look at Italy and Spain, who are just now st- starting to ease up on these restrictions. They are six, seven weeks in. Uh, You know, we're just at the month phase. So while we are starting to see the uh, hospital admission rates and infections rates starting to go down, it's not um, low enough yet for the scientific community and for at least the government from what they're saying to feel comfortable enough to start easing up. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Crystal. We've been looking at some of the pictures and the, the, the moment of silence for the healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. It, it, pretty powerful. So thank you for your perspective on this. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Be safe. That's Crystal Gumansing, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News.